Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's other co-host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a software company that is organizing the world's life sciences expertise. We are the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I'm very excited to welcome Meimei Hu, the co-founder and CEO of COVAX, and Peter Diamandis, co-founder and vice chairman of COVAX. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. Thanks. It's great to be here. Pleasure, Jens. So we'd love to start off with each of your backgrounds, your career journey, and how you got to what you're working on today. I'm sure. So I'm Meimei. I'm the CEO of COVAX, and I started out actually as a lawyer, trained as a lawyer and still recovering, and I went into management consulting for a few years, did practice in the healthcare space, went on to the investment side, and a little over a decade ago, jumped on to the biotech side. So took over United by Medical, our parent company, spun out four companies, one went public last year, and at the beginning of this year, we formed COVAX, basically dedicated to addressing the COVID-19 pandemic. Peter Diamandis, co-founder and vice chairman of COVAX, spent a decade getting a six-pack of degrees in molecular biology and medicine, but turned into an entrepreneur on my 23rd company. Early days of my life were focused on space and space medicine and space travel. Last decade has really been focused, as I guess, as I get older, on longevity and health-related areas. I first joined Mei Mei Hu and Lou Reese at United Neuroscience as a board member. And then uh, in March of this year, when it was clear COVID-19 was becoming a pandemic that was not going away, I received a call from Mei Mei and Lou saying, you know, listen, our parent company, UBI, had developed a blood antibody test and vaccine against the original SARS. We think we can stand something up here against SARS-CoV-2. What do you think? And I was like, let's do it. It's incredible. May May, what you and the team have done in the last nine months. You know, it's COVID time, <laughs> seven days a week, 24 hours a day. It is. It's smashed all records of speed and just uh, craziness. So we, we call it COVID time indeed. It's wonderful. Well, you know, maybe to kick us off to set the stage for COVAX, we'd love to learn just a little bit about UBI, its focus, uh, some of the platform you guys have developed there, and then we can sort of then go into sort of the process of how COVAX came to be and spinning it out. Yeah, of course. So UBI, or United Biomedical, is probably the oldest biotech company you've never heard of. It's over 35 years old, and it's actually commercialized a number of firsts in the industry. So the company basically licensed the first ever peptide-based diagnostic test for HCV and HIV originally. And what it did was it cut the price of a blood diagnostic to a fraction and allowed whole countries to begin screening their blood supplies for infectious diseases. That peptide technology was then kind of advanced into vaccine development. And we commercialized the first ever fully synthetic peptide vaccine at the time against an infectious disease called foot and mouth. So this was a, a disease that was ravaging a lot of countries. You know, people were burning animals. And at first it was, it was developed as a public good, but they rapidly appeared an actual long-term commercial market for it. So with that, we actually expanded to a number of other vaccines in the animal health pipeline. And today we sell over 500 million doses of animal health vaccine a year and have commercialized over 5 billion to date. 
So all of it is to say that UBI has invested a lot and has actually gained a lot of expertise and built up the capabilities to really run off a synthetic peptide platform. About six years ago, my partner Lou and I spun out a company called United Neuroscience that in-licensed this vaccine platform to repurpose for human applications, particularly in chronic diseases. So we pushed forward Alzheimer's program into clinical trials. It's now entering phase three and a Parkinson's vaccine that just completed phase one. So it's been tested not only in you know, lots of large-scale animals, but for now five human trials. So when COVID came around, we had the technology to stand up and fight this disease. And so it just seemed appropriate and necessary to do so. That's awesome. Great. And, and what was the funding environment like around getting COVAX up and running and, and focusing on a COVID-19 program at this time? You know, it's funny. I'll let Peter give his perspective too. But at the time, I remember the first call we made was to Peter and he said, of course, let's set up the company. And I called the banker and asked if they were funding anything in COVID. And at the time, they're like, not really. You know, there's some companies jumping into it, but there's not really that much focus on COVID. Little did everyone know what it would become. But, you know, in the early days, people were still wearing, you know, if they had a technology, they were kind of going into it. But there wasn't much that was starting from whole cloth to focus on COVID-19. That being said, we, we ended up kind of raising friends and family money, good strategic supporters to help see if this had legs. And it's been quite a rocket ship since. Yeah, we ended up reaching out to a circle of friends of mine who are very responsive. I mean, I have a venture fund, Bold Capital, and they were like, I'm not going to do COVID. And I said, okay, well, I'll reach out to some other venture funds. And we did. We had a venture fund, Prime Over Labs, that funded, led our seed one, our seed two, our series A. And it was a network of individuals. My network from my abundance community, Tony Robbins, who came as an early investor and his network from his platinum members and a few noted, very significant individuals who I'm not going to mention in the biotech world and the Wall Street world who came in. And what I found amazing, Maymay, was how quickly your science team stood up, what was it, like 30 initial candidates? Yeah, we, we had 30 initial vaccine candidates that we began testing almost overnight. And we stood up our antibody test in just a couple of weeks. In fact, we deployed, we were one of the first people to ground zero to distribute our antibody test at the time. It was lightning speed and everyone was just scrambling to get data out and find places where they could test. We pretty much went from 30 vaccine candidates down to one in just a couple months and then began you know, all the prep trials in preparation for our, our first phase one. If I could add, you know, it's interesting um, because when we started off, it wasn't immediately obvious that, you know, PCR was going to be the focus for the first year and then blood antibody tests were coming next. We ended up creating a partnership with the National Pandemic Center at UNMC. It's sort of the reference lab for the DOD and the White House on, on all pandemics. And we partnered with them exclusively on our blood antibody tests, which is a best in class in terms of specificity and sensitivity as an ELISA, ELISA-based test. And that business we thought would be early, but it turns out that business will be a mid-21 into 2022 business because it's after people are vaccinated, you want to know, do I still have antibodies? If I was infected, do I still have antibodies? So. PCR is the first year of the pandemic for everybody listening, and then it's, uh, blood antibody testing from year, you know, vaccine onward. You know, it's interesting, maybe I'd love to just make sure I understand the correct, maybe genesis of the technology and the company in that if I heard you correctly, UBI had historically focused a fair amount on animal health. 
And based mm -hmm. on the focus of vaccinating animals, there were certain candidates that emerged for different types of indications, but in humans. It sounds like United Neuroscience was sort of one company that commercialized that in the CNS space and now COVAX in the infectious disease space. Is that a fair sort of connection? Yeah, I, I think it's right on it. You know, what happened was animal health became a, a giant proof of concept that the technology could work. We could safely and efficaciously treat and prevent infectious disease. And we commercialized the first ever vaccine of a novel platform against a self-antigen. So self-antigens are the targets of chronic diseases. So what we showed was that we could really reliably break immune tolerance and safely generate antibodies against self-targets, which no one had really done before. So from there, we realized, hey, you know what, if this can be translated into humans, you have this huge breadth of opportunity, not only against traditional infectious disease, but against almost any chronic disease out there. It was an opportunity to disrupt the traditional biologics market. So you can think of, you know, the PCSK9 antibodies, the CGRP antibodies for migraine. These are all commercialized targets. But if you can do a vaccine version that's more convenient to patients and that's a fraction of the cost, you have a whole new modality of treatment available. So we used animal health as kind of the, the mid-step on our way to human applications. That's really awesome. You know, I think the thing that maybe most folks don't necessarily realize, which I think is, you know, really clever on your part is before you do any sort of human testing, you have to prove out a compound in animal models and mm -hmm. having animal models and certain diseases that mimic the same pathway perhaps in humans and be able to target it and, and solve it in, in animals gives you a really solid foundation then to go into humans, not to mention, it sounds like manufacturing capabilities, CMC quality, et cetera. Yeah, definitely. On the scientific part, it definitely validates the technology. And on the less sexy, but equally important, if not more important part, in terms of actually delivering those vaccines, there's a huge advantage. So being able to scale up to hundreds of millions of doses is not simple. It usually takes years. But we have that experience, which allows us, particularly in COVID time, to be able to ramp up a lot more quickly than others. I mean, that's something that we're very comfortable with, which basically ensures, you know, gives you confidence that you can actually deliver. It's kind of the behind the scenes thing. You know, people don't like to talk about it, but that ramp up, the supply chain logistics, file formats, the packaging formats, these are all things that, that you have to answer, but you, you've already answered in one form already. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's surprising that we don't hear of more companies that in the biotech world, it is very much who can get out there first, but companies taking compounds that have robust animal profiles and maybe have set up even companies around animal health and then getting into human clinical trials could be an interesting accelerant for future use cases as well. Yeah, I think there's a lot. I think some, some major companies like Merck actually have the benefit because they have both divisions within yeah. so they can actually share technologies. One interesting perspective is, you know, we always talk to first to market. And I know a lot of focus is on this first wave of vaccines. But if you look historically, the past two best-selling drugs were not first to market. They were late entrants. So Humira mm -hmm. and Lipitor before that. Uh, they were like third and fifth to market, but they won ultimately because they were more convenient to the patients or more efficacious. So, you know, market leader is ultimately going to be the best in class in this. Yeah. And that's when the market stabilizes. That's a great point. And Meme, so I'm sure our listeners are very eager. So where where are you now from a from a development perspective and what have results been so far? And we'd love to unpack how you think about the COVID landscape. Uh, so we're in phase one right now in Taiwan. You know, we have multiple dose escalating trial, which is data's incoming. So far, the safety data looks supportive and the, the immunogenicity data looks good, even though it's just interim. We're starting our phase two at the end of this year and the phase three in Brazil early first quarter. 
So we anticipate our opportunity for our first emergency use authorization in mid-2021, which will be able to unlock other opportunities around the globe. So we're taking kind of an emerging markets focus. Our motto, even before COVID, has always been to democratize health. You know, we have a very scalable platform, and one of the advantages of it is that it can provide accessibility to everyone that needs basically good medicine. So we're trying to to go and make sure that no one's left behind. You know, I think the developed world has shown that they are unbelievably good at pushing development and, and covering their bases. So, you know, we, we want to focus on the emerging markets where they have different challenges, right? You need to be able to deliver. So vaccines matter, but vaccinations matter more. And you have to be able to make sure that you deliver all the way to the end patient. In terms of perspective on the COVID landscape, I mean, I'll just give you my two cents. You know, the first is it's not a winner-take-all market. There's not enough supply to meet the demand. And even if you look in very mature markets like the flu vaccine market, there are over 20 players. So there's a lot of area for differentiation, both geographically and population-wise, and just in terms of, you know, safety and efficacy profiles. So one, we think that there are going to be at least 10 players in 2021 on the scene. And the second is the first in class is not going to necessarily be the market leader. In fact, it's very unlikely that it will be the case. As I was mentioning before, you know, best in class tends to win out. And there are some areas that are really going to be a focus, especially as people have more choice. So the first, probably you know, most important, just from a practicality standpoint, is how do you get the vaccine out there? So temperature stability and logistics is unbelievably important, right? We're at two to eight degrees. Some other of these vaccines are at minus 80 degrees. It makes it unbelievably fragile to deliver and virtually impossible to most parts of the world. So first is accessibility. Second is going to be safety. I think that's always a differentiating factor. A lot of these vaccines, none of these have major side effects like hospitalizations, but in about half of the the patients, you do get sick. You get flu-like symptoms, and that's an immune response. But uh, imagine if you can take a vaccine and not get sick. So, you know, one of the benefits of our platform is we have a very, very clean safety profile that I think is going to be advantageous. And then the third, which isn't that talked about yet, is what we call boostability. So everyone's asking, how long will the immunity last from a vaccine? We don't know, right? That's the straight answer. But at some point, it will wane. And at that point, what do you do? So people right now, most of it is just like, let's just wait for the data. But if you think ahead, the inevitable answer is going to be you have to boost that vaccine to get titers up. So think of the annual flu vaccine, kind of like that. So one of the benefits of our platform is we can boost We've boosted up to 10 doses in our Alzheimer's trial, and every single time the antibodies go straight to the, the peak levels. Some of these adenovector viruses or vaccines, you're going to develop immunity to the actual vaccine, which means that as you boost more, it's not going to be efficacious. There's going to have to be these considerations of how do you maintain immunity because we're not going to eradicate COVID-19 most likely. Um, so it's going to be around and circulating. So we're going to have to figure out ways to, to keep our, our protection. Yeah, you know, I've got just one sort of question slash thought, which is you alluded earlier to the pace at which you were able to both spin out the company, raise capital, and then scale production, evaluate candidates. I'm curious from both of your perspectives, what would it take to bring that level of focus and clarity across the entire community onto other indications? What would it take to do that in even a subset of cancer or other types of infectious diseases? Or what do you think? Let me, let me add a little bit here. First of all, we're in the midst of a pandemic where the world was ending in March and April and everybody stopped everything. And 100 million physicians, scientists, engineers, nurses all focused their, their attention on, on how can I help? Is it, is it building PPE or ventilators or in this case, a vaccine? I think what made 
this company particularly effective was first of all the leadership being able to say yes you know it's not a democracy we're going this way the second is the history that Maymay and and Lou through the parent company UBI have the manufacturing i mean this is a company that's manufactures 500 million doses per year has manufacturing in place has distribution in place so its ability to turn the focus of the company on this and forego other business because of the the value and importance of this so there's that and then there's also the fact that historically the entire pharmaceutical industry has been a very slow roll because of safety and regulations where we value the live lost from stake more than the value of the lives lost from inaction and so there's a regulatory shift that occurred and it's like ready fire aim uh, started to become more the mantra for a lot of uh, a lot of people on that point, you know, here in the U.S., there's been tremendous pressure on regulatory bodies to accelerate the development and subsequent approval of, of vaccine candidates. And obviously, you're focusing on emerging markets. How has the rest of the world and the and the countries that you're focusing on? How have they adapted in terms of acceleration of you know getting into the clinic as quickly as possible? And what you've been, let's say, surprised by there? I think it's been very impressive how a lot of these countries have adapted to COVID. So particularly from a regulatory standpoint, I'll give you an example, Envisa, which is Brazil's major regulatory body, placed a rule for COVID-19 programs that they are required to respond within 72 hours. That is incredible for entering a clinical trial, for approval, 72 hours, because they recognize it. You know, traditionally in the U.S., it's 60 to 90 days, uh, and you whittle that down to three days, and, and that is leadership in terms of sending the message of urgency and saying, we're all on this. You've seen that in other agencies as well. You know, Taiwan does a rolling review. They work very closely with us all along the way until the actual filing. So instead of doing things serially, you see a lot of things being done in parallel. And that innovation in working, I actually hope, stays even past COVID because we're finding new models of working together that are faster. And why not bring these forward? Early engagement means faster results in the end. Those are a couple examples. That's amazing. Yeah, I waited a year to get Invisa approval once. So that's uh, that's remarkable. <laughs> You're able to get it in 72 hours. That's amazing. I mean, yeah, I mean, you have these these stories of working in countries and then you you go there with COVID and you just see everyone open up and, and say, how can we collaborate? How can we problem solve together to get this done? Yeah, I, I hope some of these regulatory changes do stick post-COVID as well. I think it's a, ho- hopefully this is a, a forcing function for many of us here in biotech. I'm curious from, from both your experiences, given that you've probably seen both biotechnology and perhaps conventional technology companies grow. We've historically, let's, say, let's rewind, say five years or even 10 years, the pace of innovation, hardware, software technology was probably five, 10, 100 times faster than what we saw in biotechnology at that time. Today, for a variety of reasons, it seems like the pace is faster in part, maybe because of the integration of those two. I'm curious, like, do you feel like we are in a new world of development and speed in the biotech scene? Or do you think we're still caught by conventional bottlenecks or or historical factors? I would say the answer is both in that there is a new generation of biotech companies that are bringing a platform, are bringing AI to the table, are bringing what will soon be quantum computers to the table that will increase the speed, not just twofold, but you know, tenfold or a hundredfold and reduce the cost a hundredfold. So there's a massive shift that's about to hit. 
I think, in, in the biopharma space. And I think at the same time, you've got the traditional pharmaceutical companies that are very slow and traditional. The equivalent for me is the film industry and YouTube. And we've seen a massive decimation of the film industry and the television traditional channels, if you would, as YouTube has come along. It's the ability for rapid iteration and production. So the same thing's going to happen. We're, we're digitizing, demonetizing, and democratizing biopharma space over the decade ahead. Yeah, you know, there, there are a couple of things. It's a really interesting question. I think we're almost there. We're getting there. COVID has really been like a little fire igniting it. I think there are more platform companies. Anytime you have a platform company, the next iteration is always faster. As opposed to doing each individual drug at one time, now you're working off of platforms where you can share the manufacturing uh, design work up front. I think one thing that we've learned in this COVID is that we can really leverage off of our peers and with more transparent information. So the advent of preprint journals, you know, where you can get information from others more quickly as opposed to waiting six months. That, I can't tell you how helpful that is to speed up initial research. On real time, you can know, hey, this targets, you know, responds this way or here's the information. So I think that that was, was really game changing, particularly in COVID. And then you just think about this setting the example. I mean, I used to, to be really proud and say our team can develop from concept to lead in nine to 18 months. Well, COVID shattered all that. So it's a little bit like the four minute mile. You know, once you show what is possible, then you reset the bar in terms of where you want to hit next time. Hopefully that continues and, and we shatter that four minute mile and uh, can accelerate future drug discovery. I mean, Peter, given how close you are to what's going on in the development world around COVID, any projections around when you think the world will return to normal in some way? Well, one can say this may be this is the new normal already. So, I mean, we're going to start to see vaccines rolling out in, in the first half of 21. And so for the first world, the, the wealthier world, there'll be some return to some level of normalcy. The biggest question is going to be, how many folks will take the vaccine? That's an unknown factor. One of the things that we think is really important about COVAX is we're truly focused on safety. The platform, the vaccine uses no live virus in its manufacturing. It is a inherently very safe platform in the four human trials we've done. Our phase one, two, three data, we trust and hope will reinforce that. And we'll be able to say, listen, besides you know, my hope, is that besides the slight site reactivity where you might have an injection, there will be little to no systemic reaction, right? And we're seeing in some of the other vaccines, you know, very high percentage of fevers, chills, and so forth. So we'll see. But having said that, again, the new normal is besides the flu, you know, we've got COVID and its future iterations to deal with. I think we'll have majority of the world vaccinated by, you know, Q3, Q4 of 21. And definitely by the beginning of, of 22. That's my thought. May May, what do you think? I think there are areas in the world that are already kind of back to quote unquote normal, right? You look at China, Taiwan, Australia, people are kind of back to their ways. The biggest challenge is going to be cross-border when different countries and regions take on different policies. So I think we have, you know, close to eight billion people in this world. You know, if you have 70% of those vaccinated, that's a lot of vaccines that they need to get get out there. I think 2021 is optimistic, but we'll be heading in that direction. So, yeah, I think you'll have pockets of normalcy come back 
throughout 2021 and the next 18 months. Well, Maymay and Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. And really thank you and the rest of the COVAX team for taking on this generational challenge that we're going through right now. We'll be rooting for you and, and thanks for sharing your story with us. You're welcome. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050pod. Again, that's Biotech2050pod. Until next time.